Welcome to the DNA Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Hugh, and join with me again is the wonderful, the amazing, the impeccable David Perry, the always adorable, the always appreciated Miss Sarah Jones, and coming back for his second time, his sequel, Dr. Brian Curtis. Sir, thank you so much for coming back to the show. Um, this is an exciting episode. This is the this is going to be a first for me. I get to talk about an expedition in the, uh, that you get to you did this uh, when you went without the brachiosaurus. Was that it, right? Correct. Correct. Um, and we had lots of questions that we did not get to answer in the last time you were here, and we have more questions that we probably won't get to answer all of them, but that's okay. Um, so, sir, how are you? Outstanding. Um, it's, you know, I'm always smiling though. It's always lemonade. So it's, uh, we're out adventuring. In fact, I have just, I am editing a, a video of uh, Sariema and we're submitting a paper as soon as I get that video done, which I've got about two minutes left, the final footage, we'll upload that and it'll be a peer reviewed paper on the Sariema, which is a modern day Velociraptor. It's got a killing claw on it. Uh, if you check out my uh, social medias, I just put out some of my outtakes of it crushing a snake on uh, all the social medias. It's 59 seconds long and it's a, it's good fun. And then uh, I'm also finalizing the super source paper. I know it's a podcast, you can't see it, but for those of you in the room here, you can see me hanging out with the super source before it went to China. That was, I happened to show up the morning they were packing it up. So it was my delightful fortune. And uh, I was there because we had just gotten back from an expedition uh, where we went in Utah looking for more brachiosaurus material. And how then, successful were you on that? Uh, well, it depends on how you define <laughs> success. I okay. know where it's not. So we'll go into that. I've got a, okay. great, a great story of how science works. And okay. um, as soon as I get, I'm heading back up in June to go back to finish up the super source papers. So we can get that out of the way. And we're starting on the Brachiosaurus paper. And there's another side project that my buddy, Dr. Ray Wilhite and I have been working on for a while now. There's 10 baby sauropods, baby to juvenile sauropods died in a quarry. So I'm all excited thinking this will be great. But imagine taking 10 puzzles, each having roughly 200 pieces, a little over 200, dumping them into one big pile of mud, and then removing about 70% of the pieces, and you don't know which bone goes to which individual. So we've come up with a rubric that we believe will allow us to start sorting into the apatosaurus, which are eight of based on limb elements, and then a chimerosaurus and a diplodocus. So we think we're going to be able to tease them out first by genus, and then we're hoping that you've got some kind of birth defects, some kind of uh, preservational bias that we can use to help put certain bones uh, to certain individuals. And we've done that before successfully, where an animal's got a, like, my left shoulder droops, my right shoulder doesn't. So osteologically, ostensibly, there should be some marker of that on the bones. So we're hoping that since they have a lot of vertebrae, 15 neck and 10 backbones, that we'll get lucky and find something that had something that runs along and will help us figure it out. And why this quarry is so important is you don't find juvenile sauropods very often. And because we have so many of one taxon, we can start looking at intraspecific variation, both at one size class, juvenile, um, maybe these things were 15 feet long, tops, nose to tail, and as well as within and between species variation. So lots of cool stuff, but the amount of work that this requires is usually we would foist a graduate student on it because it's going to be a lot of hours of, um, of just comparing or what we would do is not do it at all and go work on two shelves over is 
a mostly complete apatosaurus and a pretty complete chimerosaurus. But Ray and I are silly enough to want to get into variation at a quantifiable level. And the only way to do it is to get really ugly close up to it. So we've allocated five days and that's literally 20 hour days in the lab. He's bringing his son. So his son's a teenager and he has no clue what he's about to get into. And um, <laughs> we're just going to sit around and lay out all these skeletons on the ground and uh, it should be fun. So, so let me ask you this uh, without, because, you know, I don't want to ask it like, Hey, do you guys crack the bones open to like do the, like the, uh, the tree bark aging, you know, when you look at the rings of a tree, is there some way to do that with the bones that are already fractured? Uh, a, you, we actually, it, it, so I don't study limbs. Ray is mm. a limb expert. I'm a vertebra guy. Mm. And, and as a result, the vertebral columns are present and limbs are present. So we need to be like uh, wonder twin powers, activate <laughs> to figure these animals out. I was trying to think of the names of the, of the wonder twin powers, but all I can remember was Gleek, their monkey. So I could not remember. And then Tomax and Zaymont from GI Joe came to my mind, which wasn't going to work here. Uh, but what we do actually is there are, because the, the limb bones on a sauropod, so take the animal behind me. This is a uh, limbs of supersaurus. If someone wanted to cut through this femur, we'd let them. I mean, there's a ton of bone. So there's a guy, Martin Sanders out of Germany, who does that. I know where he's been because he goes to long bones and he takes his bone saw and he cuts a chunk of the bone out. And then he does exactly what you're talking about. He doesn't age them like trees where you count growth rings. You count with something called a lag line, a line of arrested growth. And whereas humans, we grow into our bones, the long bones, as they grow, the ends get solid. So you've got the epiphyses. That's why you've got on a juvenile bone, you'll have this, a femur will have the head separate from the shaft and it all grows together. Well, in dinosaurs, they don't, they grow outward in a, in a different way, but you can count an annual cycle of growth rings. And so it's called histology. There's an entire science behind it. And so, yes, you'll now start seeing reasonably regularly in scientific papers, this animal was 15 years old when it died or was at least 13 or nine or 42. And it's because of these lag lines where you run into trouble on old individuals is at some point the bone starts resorbing because there's only so much bone. And so some of your oldest lines may get erased in your ancient individuals. So it's a minimum age. Uh, but yes, your question is spot on. We won't be doing that to these because they've already been done. And we know these animals are a couple of years old, between two and five years of, it, of age based on limb material. Problem there also, which limb bones go with which neck bone because they're all disarticulated. So we don't know. So all we can say is there's an age range and this one may between here and there. We can assume that if one vertebra is longer than another, then it's older than the other individual. But then you've got five-year-olds who are much taller than other five-year-olds. So you can't even make those bold proclamations. All we can do is put some possibilities. But great question. And yeah, it's actually something people do. Now, if it's one of a kind, it's the holotype, people aren't going to be so keen on you doing it. And likely the answer will be no. No mm. one will be doing this Darkeopteryx anytime soon, even though there's numerous specimens. But on your more common, you know, your apatosaurs, your camerasaurs, your duckbills, your ceratopsians, that's become a, a pretty solid, robust science. And you've seen it on most of the T-Rex specimens as well. If you start looking in the literature, you'll start seeing people saying it's 23 when he died. And part two of that is it allows us to start looking for sexual maturity. 
So we can apparently, and I'm not a histologist, but you can determine at what age based on some characters in the bone that they may have been sexually reproductive capable. So really? as technology advances, uh, we're able to do more and more things with these bones, which is really neat. I love tech, so it's, it's cool for me to see. Huh. So going on the, the sexual maturity, what is it, the since you do with sauropods, what would be the average range you, you were looking at? When did it say like, hey, this is the most likely time that these dinosaurs started breeding? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's different for each species. but yeah, like It's different across the board, and I don't know. I mean, I, I have a most of those studies that I look at the big, well, we'll just say it's somewhere around 10, 10 to 15, maybe, maybe a little younger, but somewhere, I call it a decade okay. before they get that. And by then they're big. So uh, if, if you believe the histology studies on, on the juvenile sauropods, like the material we're working on, in fact, they grow really fast for, a, for the first decade of their life or so. They're packing on the inches and the pounds. And they hit a certain plateau, which you would assume would be, a, you know, they're, they're an adult, but mm -hmm. then their growth drops dramatically in terms of the and how long, you know, how fast they're growing per year, but they continue growing throughout their lives like reptiles do today. So an animal that gets to be ridiculously long and supersource is a great example of this. When we only had one specimen, we could only say, well, maybe this was, well, one, one hypothesis is this is an exceptionally ancient individual. It's an ancient red dragon and it's the master size class. It's, it's, it's the apex of awesomeness. However, now we have three specimens and they're all within six feet of one another. Now you got to flip the math and do the bell curve. I'm looking at the average length of this animal is 115 feet long, 120 feet, because I have three animals all very close in size. So then it makes you wonder, well, what? that's one standard deviation, 67% of the population. Well, what happens at three standard deviations? Are we pushing 160 feet? Who knows? And uh, because these things keep growing in perpetuity. I, I joke that lightning is really the only thing an adult sauropod fears because <laughs> nothing else can reach a vital organ and it, the skin is going to get thicker and thicker as it gets older. So only your most massive of theropods would have a chance to harm a full adult's giant sauropod. And it's smart enough to know, I'm just gonna take out its kid. So yeah. it, it's not going to go risk its, its, its life and limb just to have some kind of contest. Now we do that in Chulai Championship. We have this whole fun thing we do with fossil crates where we have this ultra cheesy a matchup of weight class animals that we fight. We put the winners up to vote on social media. So we might mix in herbivores and theropods this year, like an unlimited weight class, but <laughs> the real world doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, now, Supersource is, I'm, I'm trying to imagine what it looks like. Was his neck or their neck vertically up or were they lengthen long out like diplodocus it's think of diplodocus and okay. just make it three times as long and three times or more heavy um just a big diplodocid so really oh that long. was that was one of the questions i want to ask is it diplodocus or diplodocus what side of the pond are you on because <laughs> the brits call it diplodocus oh, and no, we I call it diplodocus so it's tomato tomato aluminium it's that kind of deal really yeah. Wow. Okay. That was actually one of the questions and it was from a friend. We've been arguing because he says Diplodocus, but he's also from England. 
and I'm like, no, it's Diplodocus. So, well, that's that's interesting. And uh, <laughs> um, but so yeah, so you went out there and you checked out the Super Source. Um, is there anything that you can tell us that you guys have you know, an exciting experience with it? Oh, absolutely. So the uh, and and it'll all tie. I guess we'll tie it all. So the expedition. The expedition was to go to a Brachiosaur site, mm. but I referenced earlier. I left technology. So uh, uh, a buddy of mine, so every Thursday we have, you know, Darwin had the Lunar Society where they'd get together at the full moon and tell stories because they didn't have streetlights. Well, we have streetlights. So we have every Thursday is Beer Thursday and uh, the paleontologists in town get together and uh, we knock a few back and share tales of, of what we're up to. And I study tales, so it's uh, doubly funny. <laughs> but the, the amusing part was Sherman Muller, who's the president of the Southwestern Paleontological Foundation, he had a few in him and he was talking about his newest invention. He's a, a, a computer programmer and an inventor. And he takes these big Russian uh, gamma tubes and he puts six of them in the bottom of an 18 inch by 12 inch Tupperware tray. And he sets it on the ground. He has a Raspberry Pi that he's written custom code, thousands of lines of code. And it all plugs in, looks just like uh, something you'd make at your local makerspace. And he flips a switch, actually pushes a button and it wirelessly connects to his phone and it tells him using Z scores and propensity likelihoods of uh, background radiation being lower than some anomalous spikes if there's dinosaur bones, if the bones have to be radioactive. And we've been testing this for a while in southeastern Arizona where we have a, a mammal site and we have these uh, radioactive mammal bones. And so he, that's where he got the idea is it's a brutal place to work. You don't like to dig there. So let's work smarter. So he's able to detect a fossil camel tibia 18 inches underground there. So he tells us where to dig and we go dig. And it's really cool. So while he's drinking beers and talking about it, I said, why don't you play with the big boys? Why don't you come up and play with sauropods? Because they're big and they're radioactive in the Morris information. And if you can find a camel bone, what's a whole camel wrapped up in one bone? So let's go ahead and run. Let's run some tests. So Liquid Courage said you're on, and then the next day he realizes what he signed up for, and uh, so we went. We went with uh, the Dinosaur National Monument paleontologist. It was her vacation; it wasn't park specific. And her children, uh, her husband, who is the Vernal Museum paleontologist in Vernal, Utah, and then uh, we had uh, Brian Ang, who's a paleo artist, and then Jim Kirkland, who's a state paleontologist of Utah. And then each of those folks brought some of their crews. So we had a, a large consortium. And a couple of years back before COVID, they had excavated a left and a right brachiosaurus humerus, which was incredibly rare. There's only two other specimens known. Now we have a third. And he also had a giant rib that he pulled out of the ground. And the, and the way it worked is, is and let's see if we can get this. The ground, we're digging down, but we're also digging into a hill. So the mm -hmm. bone ostensibly should go into this hill. And we really didn't want to dig because you have to start taking the back wall down to get to the bone layer. And you don't want to do that if you don't have to. So Sherman brought out Babs, the beautiful analytical bone sensor is the uh, family rated version or the big posterior <laughs> bone sensor if you want to go beer night. So we have Babs with us. We fire it up and Babs, it, it, it has to sit on the ground for three minutes and then it looks penetrates the ground and looks for radiation, beta and gamma radiation. And so we start and we are not finding anything. And so we spent an entire day walking this thing in these, in these patches. 
And the one area we did say there's going to be bone at was pretty exciting until we were, so we dug and there was no bone, but we found out that that was laying right next to where the rib had come out. So radon had emitted from the rib and it tainted the area. So we knew where bone had been. And so that was a cool validator. And then we buried a piece of the bone that they brought with them and we were able to find it. So as always happens in stories of paleontology uh, that are worth telling, the crew was been a long windy day. So it was a big wind. We dug all over the place. We prospected all over the hills while we're while Sherman is looking for bone to tell us to go dig. And uh, every place he told us there was no bone, we of course dug because who trusts the machine? And there was no bone. So his crew took the pickaxes, went up the vertical cliff. It's uh, late in the day, but Sherman, like all good inventors, wants to find something, and so. He's waiting and literally it's me, John Foster and Sherman at the bottom of the, of the canyon and it gets a background noise hit. And so we try one last one, it's starting to get dark. There's no way, we, and where's the pick? Well, they'd already drugged the pick up. So we are waiting on pins and needles for them to go back to see because it's on the left side where bone ostensibly could be. It's just how we gritted it out. It's like Howard Carter, I don't know if you're aware of the gentleman that found all the great pyramids in Egypt, he, it's, a, it's an oval valley and he had to make a decision. Do I go right or do I go left? Well, he went right and didn't find anything 30 years later until he came back to where if he had hung a left, he would have found it right away. So the upside of 30 years was he had refined his uh, plundering techniques, took good or for ill, but mm. side note. So we went to the right, we should have went left. And now we're left wondering, is it there? We have a ton of field data on the machine. Uh, everybody went their separate ways. I then went back into the museum collections in uh, Salt Lake City area in Provo. I went here, which is a fossil logic in uh, Pleasant Grove. And everyone's now interested in testing this in their quarries. So we're looking to make it to where ideally it would be on a robot, so you know, <clears throat> roboticists that would take it and then pick it up, move it 18 inches and then sink down and then do the whole area in the interim we're using graduate students because they're cheaper and having them map it all out for us to do the hard work and tell us where to dig but there is so much potential that this machine has because we didn't find bone where it said we wouldn't find bone now that's my glass half full there he's disappointed because we didn't find bone but it wasn't there so you you told us it wasn't there and we proved you right so stay tuned so that was the the the, the lion's share of the excitement of the expedition was to test this box mm. and uh we did it so much so that all of the folks present want to keep testing it in different localities now the locality has to have radio radioactive bones what we did do is save a person's life in the sense that at the place where we were camping there was a, a little mobile home shop that sold ice so we drove up and we've got the bone detector which just happened to have it and uh, it tells you what, how, what degree of radioactivity things are. And he's like, well, I got this dinosaur bone that came from over there. So we put the radio, the, the Geiger counter on it effectively, and it pegged it and said, uh, this is uh, lethal, deadly, go away from this thing. So he's had it on display for years in his store in a case. So we advised that uh, old timer, you probably should take this outdoors and put it with the, you know, keep it away from people in an enclosed confined space. Uh, it's really cool. It's uh, it's the, what was it? It was a tibia of a sauropod 
not sure which one it was missing the diagnostic parts but it still looked cool and uh, also was one of the probably the hottest bone i've ever seen I mean, it was ridiculously radioactive why why did sorry not to interrupt you why are dinosaur bones prehistoric animal bones so radioactive it's rare that they are but when they are it's often in wide geographic regions and the rationale is as follows so there are natural radiation occurrences in in the earth i mean that's Mm. how a lot of dinosaur bones were found in utah and colorado especially in the 50s and 60s and early 70s was people looking for uranium for the military so they were out with their geiger counters and that's how so many of these fossiliferous lands produce dinosaurs in fact dinosaur jim jensen would trade allosaurus skull casts which were very hard to get a hold of back then if you found cool dinosaur material and didn't chop it up or sell it but showed him where it was at, he'd give you a skull in exchange for the locality, which I thought was really clever. Uh, so the reason why is dinosaur bone is like any bone, it's porous, it's got osteocytes in it. You can take your, your local lamb chop and you'll see lots of little honeycomb cells in it. And so water percolates through and that's how they turn to stone. That's how they petrify is those small holes, groundwater penetrates through and drops off minerals in those holes. So there are a variety of ways, apparently, that radioactivity can transpire in nature. And if water is in there, it'll soak through the bones in that area. And some kind of event, maybe some kind of impact from something extraterrestrial, whatever causes natural radioactivity to transpire, something happened between 150 million years ago and today. We don't know exactly when. We actually we we can date it. And we know sometime around 140 million years ago or so, there was some radioactive event in Western Colorado and in parts of Utah that made the bones and all the animals that were in the everything in the ground radioactive. And it's mostly low level. It's three or four times the background, but it's still not enough to cause you harm in the United States. When you cross the pond, the Brits had me sign all of these radiation waivers. They had it behind these special cabinets and they may giggle because in the US, that's just a bone on a shelf. But over there, because it had any bit of radiation, their uh, nanified society of terror and fear because of the socialized medicine, why give someone cancer if you don't have to? They mm-hmm. locked it away and made it very safe. Uh, in the US, we just call that our day job. <laughs> yeah, it's another Tuesday. Yeah. So the uh, so the bone, the actual event, I mean, people have researched it. No one's come up with any solid reason why. But the upside is it happened. And as a result, we know that there are certain areas. What's cool about the Morrison is uh, the folks at, at the dinosaur, prehistoric dinosaur journey in Fruit of Colorado, their bones, which are right off the highway, aren't radioactive. They're Morrison formation. They're just like any other bone. But when you go 50 miles north or 50 miles south, they start to get radioactive again. So it's really crazy that in certain pockets of time, you have these radioactive bones. So if we can use this device, and it's not a novel device, Rommel Jones was doing. In fact, Annie Mantark's Rommel Jones eye is named after the guy because he found it using his radiation detecting machine. His was a very different approach. It was on a wheel. The wheel rolled through the ground. It took it took uh, measurements, and then it uh, just kind of he would have to go back home and read through all these numbers and figure out where things are at. Whereas with modern tech, it's literally you could take ten of these Tupperware machines, lay it out across a field, push a button, and then wait three minutes, and you'll get all your results back, and then you know where to dig. So if we can fine tune this, 
the opportunity is immense. Now, of course, my brain being commercially oriented at times thinks to itself, well, I'm sure the military would like to know where depleted uranium shells are in Southern Arizona for a much cheaper way of finding them because we have a giant Air Force ranges where they shoot A-10 warthogs at tanks and blow things up. And there's a lot of radioactivity from the, the depleted uranium shells. Babs will find that every time. It's covered with dirt and dust and mud. So it's an inch underground. And how do you find it? It's very expensive government toys today. This thing you can build it for, I don't want to say, but it's less than a thousand dollars. It's 10 million if the government's asking. Yeah, that's but, always um, how it is. <laughs> <laughs> so random side note. So from the dinosaur expedition, I go back to, to where the brachiosaurus material that I'm about to study is. And then that led me to the supersaurus specimens because I'm writing the paper on it. And uh, this material is on a boat right now on its way to the Grandview Museum of Natural History, which is a new museum that's being opened in China. And they bought the supersaurus specimen uh, and a bunch of other really cool specimens. So they clearly have some deep pockets and they're putting together a neat museum uh, of, of mostly uh, late Jurassic dinosaurs of uh, Western North America. They've got some really cool Allosaurus. Uh, they have some neat Stegosaurus. They bought a bunch of cool specimens. Nice. And, and they're going to load that out. And so I needed to see this because the only other time to see it is over in China. And it's uh, with COVID and all of that going on, it's going to be a while till anyone can get back to China with any sense of normalcy. Mm -hmm. Is that standard practice for, for a, a private collection for some of these animals, some of these uh, specimens? to be sold because i'm sure that that they once they throw enough money at it you know you would rather i you know i don't know if you'd rather see that in a museum in utah or california or wherever but is that a common practice yeah so it's an entirely you know this is if you ask the hottest button most contentious topic within dinosaur paleontology it's fossil ownership and the way the United States laws are, if it's found on private land, it's yours. And most of the Western United States that's not government land is owned by ranchers. And what the ranchers will do will lease the land for some thousands of dollars a month or a season to let you go look for specimens. And then they get a percentage of anything that you make off of it. So there's an entire industry of, of bones that are found that that are sold to private individuals or to museums museums never like to talk about the fact that they buy specimens for their exhibits and displays um, it, it's way cheaper if you look at all of your extended costs uh, to instead of trying to find a decent specimen it can take years and years whereas if i can go and buy one off of one of the commercial folks uh, and the modern day most of the you know the reputable commercial collectors i would argue are better at paleontology of digging the bones out and preparing them than the museums are because they have paid professionals. Time is money, uh, information is valuable. They are mapping these out using LIDAR. They're going really great levels of detail to pull these specimens out of the ground because it enhances its value to the museum. And uh, as other nations, the Middle East, like they bought Stan, you know, it ended up in Abu Dhabi. And um, Stan is now going to be on display in a museum that's, you know, that's unbelievably gigantic. It's larger than orchards. It's, it's hundreds of thousands of square feet in size that they're going to use. And they have purchased, they went on a spending spree. And with inflation and the stock market volatility and oil prices, you know, it was a, it was a safe bet to go buy these objects that are just going to appreciate in value over time, as long as they're not Piltdown Man style. 
Okay, no. so you, you just mentioned a second ago that there were people who do this professionally, as opposed to museums or uh, universities that where people are in academia uh, that, that dig these up. So is, is that sort of uh, lifestyle, is it lucrative? If someone's a young kid, is that something that they would want to do? Or is that a different kind of thing that, that people got into paleontology to begin with? So a lot of the folks that do this, they love paleo as much as the academics like myself love paleo, but they show either they didn't, they couldn't, they, they didn't have good grades or they couldn't afford it or their whatever reason, they just didn't like being indoors. They love being outdoors. When you meet all of these folks, you right away go, oh yeah, I get it. They love paleo. Now they're not classically trained quite often. They don't know all of the terms of the laminate. But that's irrelevant because that's not what they're doing. They're out They're They're basically like they're the ones that love finding. They're, they love the they love the hunt. And then when they find something, they love to pull it out of the ground. And so now there are some academic institutions that have field teams, but those field teams can only work a couple months out of the year versus year round conceivably because they'll move around. But your other question is it lucrative. I will. It's like any business in the United States. For the guy or gal, but it's all men to my knowledge, who launched these companies and took the risk on the front end, they're the ones that reap the lion's share of the reward. The other employees are 15 to $20 an hour individuals that are living their dream job. Now, they're usually in places such as Rapid City, South Dakota, not exactly a mecca of expense until the oil boom recently. Uh, and they are in places in Thermopolis, Wyoming, you know, middle of nowhere. So a dollar goes a lot farther overall, cost of living's lower, but none of these folks are gonna be driving the new electric powered F-150 Lightning Pro, except the owner of the company, because that person is putting up all the money, taking all the risk. And it is a lot of money involved in finding these big specimens and preparing them. The finding is often dumb luck. So, once you find something, you get a hot tip. Some rancher wants $5,000. It, it's a it's telephone game. You're looking around. But let's say you find a good specimen. And Sue's a great example. Now you have 3,000, 6,000, 10,000 hours of, of preparation on the specimen. And it to get if it's a, it's going to be a really expensive specimen, you're going to bring your $30 an hour preparator, your really high-end person to do the work. Now you're in the millions of dollars conceivably of cost of excavating the specimen, pulling it out of the ground safely, getting it home to safely, then making it ready for display. And not just what they used to do and the museums did this as well, which drives me nuts in the 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, Andrew Carnegie wanted display pieces. They wanted display, science was secondary. So they just slapped coats of Bondo and Vinac and paint and called it a day and ruin some really nice specimens capabilities to be studied. Whereas the professional folks, they really want you to know uh, where the original bone is versus what's not original because that has a value for researchers which will enhance its value. And they'll sell you a cast as well. So if you wanna keep the original bones on a flat display and a 3D mount somewhere else. So there's a tremendous expense and they go out of business. Sometimes they'll go three, four or five years without making a big sale. And then they have to, they, they, they close up shop. But the ones that are still around, um, the owners make money, 
but even none of the, very few of them are living the high life. They're not buying houses on hills. They're living their dream job. Age-wise and size-wise, Sue and Stan is typically it's the how it works with the, it was with T-Rexes. The, the females are typically larger. Are Stan and Sue about that or? So ostensibly that's the case, but the only way to know a dinosaur is female. There are only two ways that you can know a gender of any fossil. Does it have a baby inside of it? Like an egg in the oviduct? Okay, it's a female. We know it's a female. The only other way to know for sure is in the medulla, does it have medullary bone? Medullary bone is a kind of bone that, that occurs in female dinosaurs and animals like birds today when they're about to, when they're making eggs. So if it has that or an egg, we have no indication that um, Sue's a female or Stan's a male that's, that's, really, that's really held out to my knowledge. They don't have medullary bone in either of them. So as a result, it could be guys, but it could be a female that wasn't in the process of making an egg. So as a result, it's 50-50 and no other way would you know. So we like to name them. I don't personally like naming things, but it's all the rage, Sand, Stu, uh, this is Goliath behind me. Uh, all these animals get names nowadays because names are trendy and actually names are very valuable from a social media standpoint because now you can say so-and-so dinosaur. What's funny is the, our cast of our uh, scaled skull, it's a, the Tufts love specimen and the Tufts love is not a name that rolls off your tongue. It was named after the two kids, the two, two friends that found it, but it doesn't have that same uh, sensational name as uh, Tony the Tricera or the Taurosaurus or whatever other names that come out. Who was the one that they, the, with the heart, the dinosaur with the heart? Willow. Had, yes. yes. Yeah, sadly, uh, I've, I've, I know specimen numbers. You want to talk CM11338? I got you. <laughs> I came 429, AMA 6341. Now I know that we're talking the same language because there's no <laughs> doubt. But because Sue and Stan and these other specimens are typically composites, they're not 100% complete. So mm. they use other parts. If they don't fabricate one wholesale, they'll go grab another T Rex skeleton and grab its parts and then make it on there. So that's why the academic paleontologists, when we're talking to each other, we use specimen numbers because even mm. the famous Diplodocus carnegii, Dippy is its nickname, uh, it's CM84, except parts of it are CM94. So when we're talking paleo, we're always talking specimen numbers so we know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, that's uh, one of the, the minutia, the pedantic levels that paleontologists go when we are doing research. And we're rarely able to turn it off and then step back. At least I'm not. I like specimen numbers. I, Plus, I just feel like it would make life easier for you too. Yeah, it does. It, it, well, a nickname would be easy. Like this is Goliath. But once Goliath gets mounted and, and once it left that lab and it gets all these other specimen bones, because it wasn't complete, now it's just going to be Goliath. And it's just what it is. It's just a generic animal. And, and then you have to go figure out what bones are original. And that's uh, to your earlier comment on um, commercial collectors uh, in the nineties, they really, up until the mid nineties, even they were painting the bones. They would even grind up original dino, like ribs, we call them ribbish. They grind up ribs into the paint. So you can't tell what's original and what's not. So the more, uh, you know, scoundrels of the paleo commercial world were making it almost impossible for the academics to know what's original bone or not. 
unless you go take a knife to it. And I always carry a pocket knife. And if you look at some of the bones, you will see where I have dug in to try to figure out is this original bone or not? Because for research, I can't be making a paper based off of plaster. That's so, so for an, for an academic, for someone who's gone into paleontology in, in academia, what percentage of their job is teaching in a classroom? What percentage is working in the field? What percentage is doing fundraisers and all that unsavory thing that you have to do to get your next grant? It depends on the institution. So if you look at someone like Julia uh, McHugh, who's a wonderful human being in Fruta, Colorado, she's a one woman wrecking ball. She has to fundraise. She has to get the preparation done with local volunteers. She has to coordinate with the volunteers. She has to go and raise money. She has to find specimens. She has to prep specimens. Flip that around to the American Museum of Natural History. They have an entire 10 person deep fundraising group. They have a prep team. They have a collections management team. They have an exhibits team. They have a professional paleontologist whose sole job is to prepare, is to describe fossils that someone else found and someone else prepared in many cases. So like any other entity, it, it really depends on the scale of the job that you're working at. So here at the Arizona Museum of Natural History, uh, the team has a really strong volunteer core for preparation, and we take them into the field to find fossils as well. And uh, we'll do the science. So we're more of supervising. We're herding them, making sure that they're doing the, the good stuff that we want them to do. But we are run by the city, so we don't have any funds. The cities rarely have extra dollars at the end of any given year. So we rely on the foundation to help raise money. And so we've offloaded some of that. So they trundle us out for a, you know, meet and greets, handshakes. I'm a handsome guy. So I come out and tell <laughs> stories on their behalf. So it, it's in, uh, in, it all depends on the size of the institution. The reality is a lot of paleontologists today um, don't even, they, they teach anatomy. So they teach veterinary anatomy or human gross anatomy. Uh, that's probably the number one discipline of your traditional paleontologist is goes into child is, is because it, there's always a job for anatomists. The number two, which used to be number one, is geologists. They'll go out and they'll be a geologist. So they're teaching geology, but they're teaching no one. There's really no paleo degrees. Um, University of Oregon had one for a while. They still might. I think there's one other small college that has one and then Oxford. Uh, for undergrads. There's nowhere to go to become a paleontologist to begin with academically. So you have to start out and you have to pick a degree. Are you going the geology side where you're going to learn what the, how to find them, what rocks are they going to be in? Or are you going to go the soft tissue side and the anatomy and then learn how to interpret the bones once they're found? And paleo is truly a, a crossover sport to where you end up learning a lot of each discipline. But it's tough. If you're a kid today, I'm working on a, an actual master class on how to become a paleontologist. But the very first thing I like to start off with is I show a chart which shows there's 25 different jobs that I would call paleontologists. I even consider what you guys are doing. If you're if you are 100% paleo, you're psychom. And it's cool. If I find the neatest dinosaur in the world and no one knows about it, did I find it? Does it matter? Part two. Even if I told everybody I found the neatest dinosaur in the world, I need paleo artists. 
I need someone to convey visually to get the masses excited. And I think that's why paleontology has done so well is every kid likes them. But one of the reasons every kid likes them is in the earliest of days, we're drawing dragons. We're drawing gigantic animals that are extinct. So they're safe, but they're also scary because they're big and awesome with sharp teeth. And then you have 3D paleontologists. You have individuals who spend their whole days scanning. I was just, when I was at BYU, they have a really cool Pharaoh ADEX scanner. And it's, it's incredible. And so they've got, they're scanning the bones digitally. Well, now you need someone who's, who's a specialist at taking those scans, removing the artifacts, piecing them together on large bones because you can't scan them all at once. And then interpreting that to where then you print them. But the 3D printer person is not always your scanner person. There's so much technology involved. Uh, and now with drones, I'm still working on flying drones to find fossils. So now you're gonna need drone pilots who know how to read what they find to send the paleo folks out to dig them up. So paleo is a, is a truly, it's, now, it's not even a village, it's a small city nowadays of resources. And that's why you see co-authorship being so popular is you go and you try to find someone that has a skill set that your team lacks that you can plug in. And you'll find occasionally you'll get universities work together but the academics, they tend not to like to partner with other academics because who gets the credit when something's found? Well, I want my university to be top bill. And commercial folks don't work together because how do you split the royalties? How do you split the revenue? Um, knowing how much effort goes into it. So it's a long-winded soliloquy to try to answer that. But I see you have another follow-up to it. I'm really, really glad that you actually touched in on that because I had a student actually today ask me a question. Remember, I'm a third grade teacher, so I've got, you know, all these little boys that have loved dinosaurs since they were yay high and they're still yay high. Um, one of them was like, that's all I've ever wanted to be. He's obsessed with dinosaurs, completely obsessed, carries little figurines with him everywhere. And he was like, can you find out how I can be a paleontologist? And I was like, <laughs> I'll do my best, buddy. <laughs> so that was one of the questions that I was kind of bringing to the table today. Um, and you kind of answered it for me, definitely saw that there's a multifaceted kind of view of paleontology. Yes. Now, not my, my view is not shared by all paleontologists, because if you're at the top of the ivory tower, you're the king or queen. Why, why would you acknowledge others or paleontologists as well, necessarily? Not disparaging certain individuals, but I've seen it. But I will say to your eight-year-old that um, to become a paleontologist, the number one thing that he can do or she can do is volunteer at a local museum. And if it's not a dinosaur museum, volunteer to train museum, a history museum. It doesn't matter what the museum is. It's you want to get into that museum culture because you're going to spend a lot of time working with museum folk. And there is a culture within museums. There is a way of going about doing things. And if you can get in and volunteer, even archaeology, um, learn their one, one centimeter at a time approach. Can you imagine trying to dig one of these up one centimeter at a time? Drive you nuts. So it's a separate <laughs> discipline, but there's enough overlap that if they get experience anywhere, if they don't have a natural history museum or a zoo, any kind of, the other side was we learned a behavior observation. So all great paleontologists are well-versed on extant taxa, living animals. So it is amazing to listen to us start pulling out. It's like we almost want to one-up each other on this most bizarre, crazy animal you've never heard of. Sometimes we make them up just to see if you'll agree with us. And then we're like, that's not a real animal. That's awesome. It's terrible, but you keep ourselves on our toes. There's so much out there. And with the videos, the YouTube videos that they can watch, 
nearly every animal has something that that is cool to find there's a there's a two volume set called walkers mammals of the world and that book has the guy walker basically photographed and has a description of every mammal that's known it's a great place to start you you don't really in fact bats aren't even in there they get their own book because there's so many of them but you find about all like the fossa f-o-s-s-a what the heck's a fossa there's actually some on display in the san diego museum uh san diego zoo they're these madagascar carnivores that look kind of like a cat but kind of not and they do cool things and all these different animals have all this behaviors that if you know behaviors then you can now start to look for, well, are there morphological characters or there physical characters on the bones that would allow us to think that behavior exists? Or flip it the other way, if you look at the skull of, say, a dugong, a relative of the manatee, you might think it has a trunk, but we have them alive today and it doesn't have a trunk. But when you look at it and you look at it versus an elephant, you can easily envision adding a trunk onto this animal. So there's all of these memes that go around what the bones look like, what we draw, what it really is. And it, usually it's a beaver tail because you wouldn't expect to have that expansive uh, horizontally compressed skin flattened out like that. You don't get the sense that it's there. And uh, that's why to go to your Jurassic Park question, they can do what they want because short of finding an incredible specimen, there's really a lot of these soft tissue features. We'd have no way of knowing that the, uh, what is it? The, the seal, I want to say it's the monk seal, has a giant red nose that it inflates, this gigantic nose when it's showing off for the ladies. And if you haven't seen it, go look at like seal with giant red inflatable nose and it just puffs out. If you ever look at a ceratopsian, it has the largest nostrils of any dinosaurs, maybe of any animal even. If you look at a huge triceratops, that giant hole at the front on either side, that's all nostril. So how much of that was exposed? Well, we would like to think none but perhaps a lot of it was exposed and it could blow out these giant sacks. I mean, who knows? Go ahead. Yeah, no, no. So it's so funny you were saying that because I just had saw a trailer for on Apple TV. They've got a- uh, Prehistoric planet. Yes. And I, I saw on one of the sauropods, they had puffing looking sacks, if I remember. I did. So I'm sure that there's an animal that somebody saw. That looks cool. Let And probably the monk seal. Let's put it down its- neck because mm. the sauropod necks are full of air sacs they are so pneumatic the bones of a of, you know supersaurus's longest neck bones five over five feet long but it is really really hollow it almost looks like an i-beam and all of the part where you normally dinosaurs would have massive amounts of bone on the side that's all gone it's replaced in the animal by these huge air sacs that were there. So perhaps they took the air sacs and just said, well, why not have an external um, manifestation of it? Which, okay. I'm probably going to hate it when I see it, but I can at <laughs> least understand why they artistically interpret it. One that's bothered me forever is Amargosaurus. Amargosaurus is an animal. I went down to Argentina and, and studied all the bones and it has small, it's a small sauropod. So, but it has say three foot tall bony projections coming out of the back of its neck on both sides. So sauropod neck bones have up in the diplodocids and their relatives, they have these bifurcation, their neural spine, the top of the vertebra is, is split like a V. But in a margosaurus, that V is three feet tall. It's six times as tall as the centrum is long. So, and it's bone. So was the bone exposed? 
or was it covered in a keratinous sheath, making it even taller and thicker? And if so, was that a sale? And if it was a sale, how much of it was individually rods poking out versus how much of it was covered in skin? Was it all covered in skin? It was just one giant dome. Maybe it was filled with air, maybe with fat, adipose tissue. It's hard to say. And I just saw a study coming out suggesting like a week ago, or so I haven't read it yet, but the abstract suggested that it was all covered in um, one mound of, of skin. It's hard to say, but I know in nature, the thing you don't want to do is project real thin, delicate bone on the top of your neck and just have bone sticking up because as soon as you break the bone, you're introducing infection risks that would be really bad. So it had to be covered in something, but then in what? And so if you Google Amargasaurus and click the images button, it's A-M-A-R-G-A-saurus, you will find an astounding array of artistic interpretation of what this animal looks like. And to my opinion, I haven't read this paper yet, but up until this paper, no one knows. So the artists can go crazy and I'm not gonna say no to any of them because I don't have a way of, of refuting it or supporting it. But it sounds like someone's looked at that histology of it and has a, a current hypothesis. So we'll see. I'm I all over the map that, here. by the way. Yeah. It's amazing. The yeah. interpretations are very, very broad. It's, and then there's Bahadasaurus, B-A-J-A-D-A, -A -A, and uh, you'll see it, and it's, those spines on the Amargosaurus are curved forward. Now, the dirty secret about Bahadasaurus is Amargosaurus, they found most of the skeleton, so we know what it looks like, and it has a cousin called Dicreosaurus in Africa that has something similar. Bahadasaurus was a cervical vertebrae, or it was a couple of cervical vertebrae, fairly up front, uh, who knows if it was deformed. I need to go to South America and look at it this year or next, but it's a beautiful animal, great name, but what carries its day and why a lot of kids like this animal is the artwork that this, the paleontologists were clever. And when they published it, they also put out easy to access royalty-free artwork of the Bahadasaurus. So anytime I do anything now, I've learned, hey, you better put some good images around it if you want to get some kind of social pop. Because full circle again, it's because the visualization, that, that, that sense of wonder and amazement that dinosaurs allow us to do, because we know they're real and there's a lot of animals that we can compare them to, but there's nothing that we can compare them to at the same time, because there's nothing like dinosaurs today, except birds, but they're one small group. So, I was gonna ask this question. I think we kind of answered it too. Uh, somebody wanted to know, uh, the dinosaurs, we imagined are they are we accepting that all dinosaurs had proto feathers or feathers of some no. sort or is it still no. are we still able to imagine that they have scales yes and in fact we know they have scales a hundred percent many of them had scales mm -hmm. we have entire mummies of hadrosaurs duckbill dinosaurs no no proto feathers no feathers no sense of feathers we have massive swaths of ceratopsian skin uh, some are in private collections but I don't, many paleontologists, they do this. They close their eyes, bury their head in the sand. I refuse to acknowledge it if it's in a private collection. Well, guess what? It's still real. Just because it's not in the literature and I can't go study at the guy's house doesn't change the fact that it didn't have feathers. So no ceratopsian. Um, we have large tranches of Tyrannosaurus, Gorgosaurus, Albertosaurus, Tyrannosaurus skin. No feathers, none whatsoever. 
no hint of the feathers. We have them on the midline, we have them all over the patches, no feathers. So we know that many dinosaurs lack feathers. Now we know that one particular group had feathers, the Maniraptorans, the Velociraptorines, but why do we know Velociraptor has feathers? And I have a blog on the fossil crates where you can see the pictures and read about it more, but we know it has feathers because it has quill knobs on the ulna that was found. So we found an ulna because feathers aren't preserving in Mongolia, but we found an ulna and it has these little holes in it. And when you look at the holes, the only animals that have holes are birds that have feathers and the holes look the same. And then of course, you've got the feathered dinosaurs from China um, that clearly are feathered, but they're all these paraavians, they're these maniraptorans, raptors, if you will, they're one group. So folks quickly say, well, Brian, what about Vipalosaurus or Euteranus? Uh, Euteranus is a tyrannosaur or at least a big theropod with feathers. And what my hunch tells me is just, it's, and I'll, I'll, it's, this is pure speculation on my part, my hypothesis, but I don't study these animals, so I probably will never personally test it. Notice all those feathered animals were found in the same localities. Well, guess what? Edaphosaurus and Dimetrodon, those big pelicosaurus with the sails, the sail-backed guys, they were all found in the same localities. Something tells me that the environment required in order to be successful, you have feathers in this particular ecosystem for whatever reason. Uh, also, one might think that, well, feathers are only in the theropod dinosaurs, but then you have this little animal called Calendodromius. And this particular animal is an ornithopod. There's no doubting it's an ornithopod, and it appears to have some kind of feathery covering on it. Uh, then you run into, well, what's a feather versus a proto feather? In the case of the famous Attacosaurus that's drawn with the quills on it, uh, keep in mind there are private collectors in China that have over 100 Attacosaurus, complete, beautiful skin impressions and private collections. No to that little tail feathery stuff. So some people have, have posited that that's some kind of fungus that grew as the animal died and created it, or maybe it's plant material. So there's not even 100% consensus among the vertebrate paleontological community about some of these ceratopsians that are allegedly have these protofeathers. Uh, until you find something that has some, how do you even define a protofeather? There's the other side. As often we fall into this semantic uh, sinkhole of, well, what's a feather? What's a protofeather? What characteristics are required to be one or the other? And it gets into, the scientists can't make a decision but the artists decide for us. They draw it with feathers. And then Jurassic Park draws it with feathers in the new movie, I'm sure. And now it becomes canon. That is now canon. And it doesn't matter what anyone says because the media has spoken. It's, it's funny you mentioned, you know, Tyrannosaurus not having feathers because there was this, uh, I, I saw something, and again, I got it on the internet, so it must be true, um, <laughs> that Tyrannosaurus Rex's hands may not have been in front of them the way that they have them we how we imagine that they are that it may have been further back almost ostrich wing style i have and not heard that that huh. you haven't oh so i'm throwing something new at you then yeah i mean i've uh, looked at a number of tyrannosaurus skeletons and i don't have any reason to think that would be the case um it was something rotating i guess they were talking about how you rotate if you were to rotate the actual arm bone or the i i don't know anatomy That's okay um but i'll go if, dig around on it yeah dude i did uh, there funny dig. and they were saying because of the <laughs> yeah it would be it was funny because it's just like 
the length of the arm is comparatively to, I guess they were comparing it to ostriches. And if you were to look at how they, if you were to rotate it and adjust it to where that it would, if it had feathers, proto feathers, whatever you will, it would be on the same caliber as an ostrich. The funny thing there is that's completely testable because mm. we, because we have so many Tyrannosaurus animals with humori and that's funny. And as a result, what we can do is look at all of the muscles that attach and all the attachment points. And, mm. in, a good, and in a good paleoanatomist, we'll be able to quickly compare that to an ostrich humerus and mm. then quickly say, no, that can't go that way. My favorite example of that is uh, Ray Wilhite out of Auburn. He's a great anatomist. And all these sauropods are drawn with their, with their uh, shoulder blades and they're drawn way wrong. And they're drawn wrong because it's all drawn by artists. And when the anatomist looked at them, he's like, well, you guys have a basic physics problem here with your drawing. The glenoid where the humeral head attaches has to attach in a certain way in order for the arm to swing. And when, when you draw the scap coracoids the way every artist draws them today, well, the arm can't ever walk because the humerus is sticking at a bizarre angle. <laughs> so no anatomists have looked at this and the paleo artists aren't climbing like the bone to my on my right hand there that's a humerus they're not going and climbing all over these things like ray is because he's a paleontologist and he's an anatomist so he can't draw it he draws stick figures but he draws a good stick figure but his logic is amazing so we've shown a couple artists and they're like huh that's interesting and then it helps that uh one of uh, one of his uh, students funny enough imagine that uh, found a camera source where we have on the ribs the angle that the scap coracoid lays and it bears him out that he was right. So all the sauropod skeletons you see are pretty much wrong in terms of how the angle of the scapula. And I mention this because you talk about getting lit up on Reddit or get the, the folks on DeviantArt fired up as you tell them their scap coracoid angle is wrong and they go nuts and they don't want to hear it. When you Every artist has drawn it that way before me. Well, that doesn't mean it's right. No, it just means that they were all copying someone somewhere. So the anatomy is so important. So to your eight-year-old, if he wants to go dissect roadkill, that's a great way to start learning anatomy. <laughs> he in Florida, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody needs a hobby. You know, I went and from West Virginia to Florida. So, you know, dissecting oh. roadkill is not out of the ordinary for either mm. place. I got I a had buddy to bring a, a dead squirrel to school one time. Perfect. So, you know, I brought what I thought was a dead hummingbird to school. And I may have mentioned this on the last broadcast and I put it in my pocket and I carried it into school and sat down in my college class college. So here I'm an undergrad. You'd think I'd know better. <laughs> and um, middle of English. And all of a sudden, this feels something wiggling around in my pocket, and I look down and it flies out, and it was in torpor. I didn't know about torpor. It had gotten very cold for Arizona, and the hummingbird basically went into hibernation. And a big storm had knocked it out of the tree, and I walked by and picked it up off the ground. And my chest warmed it up, and off it flew around the classroom. Amazing. <laughs> now I know about how hummingbirds can go into a hibernative state. There you We're go. We're aware of that now. The more so, you know. So the rest of the expedition, it's your standard. So my field vehicle, when I go by myself, mm. is a Mazda Miata. And you can imagine the giggles that I got when I came rolling in with the top down. We're outside of uh, Cap Capitol Reef, 
Utah, beautiful country, like some of the prettiest country you will ever see. So I got the top down, the weather's perfect because it's Southern Utah in, in April. I mean, it's, it's warm enough, it's just incredible. And I'm, you know, you go around canyons and carbon corners because it's all crazy twisty roads. And I've got my sleeping bag, my tent. I'm now old and I brought an air mattress with a, you know, so I'm I've got a, I, I can air it up. <laughs> So I'm, uh, I'm all loaded for my field trip. I round out and you've got all these trucks. You know, everybody's got a truck. And they're like, well, you're going to need to ride with one of us because the road's tough. And I said, all right, that's fine. I'll, I'll ride in the back. I don't care. I grew up in Arizona. I thought that's how everybody rode around was in the back of a pickup. So the funny part of the story is, so I get there and um, next morning we, we set off. And I'll, I'll actually come back to that in a moment. And we set off to go and I'm riding in their truck. Well, we still had to hike almost a mile because none of these trucks could make it any farther than the Miata would have made it because the road was <laughs> rutted and washed out. So my like, guys, I could have driven here in style and comfort. I mean, what, why do I need a big truck? You can't go anywhere I can't go. So they were uh, suitably chastised. And in fact, they wanted to drive the car when we got back to the quarry because it's just gorgeous covered. So the other logic I have is if I have to go into a place where the vehicle can break, I want to be driving not my vehicle. So ideally it's the museum's vehicle because it's supposed to break occasionally and I don't need to have that headache in my personal life. So the, the vehicular situation, I, I, I have a little YouTube, uh, it's on uh, Instagram or somewhere, a video, I should put it on YouTube, of me, I laid all the stuff out and then I filmed me packing the car. So it's kind of funny because you would not believe how much a 2011 Miata will hold if it's just you it holds a ton of stuff so we get I get to the to the we have a designated spot where we're all going to meet they gave us GPS coordinates that's when you know it's real it's because you don't have you just have a, a, a minutes and seconds and you're like all right so of course I cheat and use Google Maps I punch it into my Garmin <laughs> GPS say I'm not going to be pulling this stuff I want to drive there so I get there and there's no one there well, this is this is about oh say it's, it's 12 30 in the afternoon and we're supposed to meet early afternoon so in my mind 12 30 I'm, I'm good so one two there's no cell signal there's no cell signal for a 45 minute drive in either direction so i'm waiting three o'clock four o'clock no one's showing up not thinking now did i have the right date which yesterday you clearly say i've done that before <laughs> uh i I was then began you all the doubts that you have of did I mess up? And then once I convinced myself it's not me, it's them, are they dead in a ditch? Are they broken down the side of the road? Did they find something really cool and, and they're not gonna tell me because they can't tell me? So it wasn't until dark, and now I'm by myself in the wildlands, and I'm starting to think this could get kind of dicey out here. I'm I don't know what the wildlife is in these parts. And I've, I've already set up camp and um, taken a nap, went down to the river, bird, I, I, I herped and I birded. And I did all the things paleontologists do in your downtime. And then I hear, because sound travels, I hear someone show up and they are, they are completely covered in just filth. They clearly had had a hard day. And uh, they had found extra dinosaur bone in this other locality and they wanted to get it out of the ground because it was near a public road. And so, but it wasn't the whole crew. The rest of them stayed behind to get more out of the ground. And so all the next day, so day two, we sat around wondering, well, we don't know where this site of the Brachiosaurus is at. 
And we wish we did because we could have went and used the machine a day earlier. And so we're sitting there wondering and we go look for fossils, but don't find anything. And it's, it's reminds me of the days back when I started in paleo when there were no cell phones. And so you just, you, what was shocking to me was how reliant all of us have become on technology of the cell phone persuasion. So the young kids were just going crazy. Like, what do we do there? You could see them just checking their phones and there's no signal. And you can climb up that hill. There's still no signal. There's no signal here. When before I left, I checked all of the carriers, you know, even if it's one bar and it's the tiniest amount of signal, they'll advertise signal in their coverage map. It said no signal. That takes a lot for those companies to admit. So I knew there was no signal. So this, the second evening, the rest of the crew rolls in and wow, I'm glad I wasn't on their crew. It was 40 plus mile an hour wind. So they had been sandblasted. They had just been utterly filthy and I'm, I'm getting old for this stuff. Oh, wow, that looks awful. I'm glad I was over here and my, it was, it was a lazy day for us. We just told stories all day and planned what we were going to do. And uh, so then the next day we set off and found the Miata could have, could have accompanied the fleet because they weren't going anywhere I wasn't going. So we hike up the hill and uh, of course you're hiking with 40 pounds of gear because you don't know what you're going to need. So you've got single jacks, which are like four pound hammers. You have picks, you have all manner of chisels because in a paleontologist kit, the chisel is one of the most important items. You have different kinds of hammers, different chisels, and you're ready, you're ready to go. Then someone has to carry the water for the plaster and plaster is not light and water is certainly not light. So you've got to sit there and divvy up all of these different components to haul them down to the quarry where, or to where we wanted to go look. And then the quarry was not a large quarry. It was, you could get maybe four people into it, but we had 12 folks. So the upside of that is we sent scouting crews. So for the rest of the day, and it's daylight long there, they were walking up and down the cliffs and in the gullies trying to find fossils. So every hour or so, they'd come back with some scraps of bone and they'd be like, Hey, I found this. And then they'd mark it. And they Jeep, we all have GPS, you know, like the Garmin C, uh, CSX sixties geotag it. So we know where it's at within a foot or so. And it was pretty cool to watch the, uh, these different teams because they hadn't worked together before, but all these different teams came together, these government agencies basically, and they worked really well. And it was super fun and exciting. And, uh, but because we didn't have any new localities to go to, uh, we spent another day prospecting. We've got a lot of possible other sites, but it was just surface prospecting because we can only cover that six, 18 inch by 12 inch area. We can't just stamp our way across the desert floor. Um, but it was, uh, it was great for people that love living outdoors, that like to take showers out of a milk jug. And although now they make these slick bags that grab the sunlight and heat up the water and uh, you can hang them from a tree, which is kind of cool. But it's, it's definitely a camping lifestyle and dust everywhere. The winds, uh, I have not my first rodeo. So I took my spare tire and put it on my tent. And I'm like, what are you doing? Well, the Miata doesn't have a spare tire. It's more of a, like an air compressor. But I stuck that in there. It was pretty heavy. And I put a lot of all, everything heavy I could find, I put out of the car. And it's a good thing I did because when I came back, the tent rods had bent over and the winds had ripped through and would have blown the tent we would have never found it. Um, I've lost tents before in my early days. So the, the things that the gray hair does give you is air mattress. My tent was there. Everybody else's tent, the young kids that were all collapsed. 
Um, they and I, they, they had used tent stakes, but they only half staked them down. So the ones that were mostly not staked had come up and it had pulled it, it had tacoed itself like a soft taco. It's a mess. Um, so wind is not your friend. And then the rains came at night. And I didn't, but here's where I left the rain flap off so I could enjoy the beautiful stars. And then I wake up to rainwater dropping on my head. And I said, well, that wasn't so clever, was it? So I had the, the pleasure of rain flapping and in a rain, which is not delightful, but That's it awesome. was pretty stars. I, I've, I've felt that pain before, Had even with the Cub Scouts, went out with my son and it rained sideways. So it literally just negated my whole rain cover and flooded my tent. It's always great waking up to my hands, like sitting in like two inches of water. And I was, I, I sleep on cots. Like that's, that's what I do. I don't do the floor. And uh, yeah, no, that was not fun. Um, so I, I did have some questions I did want to ask you. Fire away. Uh, uh, so somebody wanted to know specifically about Tyrannosaurus teeth, but I'm going to broaden this to carnivores in general uh, because T-Rex had serrated teeth. Was it a possibility that if it didn't make a kill, much like a Komodo dragon, bacteria and infections would have at least delayed or slowed down the prey? Would, it, is it, would that have been a thing? It's possible. I don't know why it, it couldn't, but I wouldn't have worried about it if I'm T-Rex because mm. um, we've excavated Triceratops that a T-Rex bit and the Triceratops got away. And it lived for a couple of weeks and died a very smelly, agonizing death. We know it lived a decent amount of time because the bone started to heal. Or, you know, you get, you've got very, if something gets bit and survives, bone tries to heal. But the, the way the T-Rex specifically bit, uh, bacteria wasn't, you're going to bleed out. Those serrations are going to leave just a jagged, gooey mess. Now, there's a, there's a great Edmontosaurus that has a tail chunk missing where the T-Rex took a bite and it lived. Uh, could it have had disease? I'm sure it could have. They were losing teeth almost monthly. So mm. the other piece, you know, the, if the disease was in the gums, maybe you could get it. Um, I would say if it was myth busted, I can't bust it, but I can't say proven. Mm. I'd say it's a very clever thought and uh, absolutely... I would think that it's a possibility, but a T-Rex bite, even from a smaller one, would be so much more traumatic than the uh, long-term slow kill of a, of a class D poison from like first edition, where it <laughs> takes time to kill it out. It's going to, it, you're going to have massive blood loss. Okay. Um, this person wanted to know, uh, given how much Hollywood exaggerates everything that is to do with dinosaurs. Uh, what is the most accurate film or material medium that you can watch about dinosaurs? Hmm. So first I would say Dilophosaurus got shafted. Hollywood <laughs> not take the great 20 foot, wonderful Arizona, my home state predator and do it justice. It got to be colorful, frill, spitting venom, terrible. It seems to me that, you know, there was a lot of technology and a lot of they I think they tried to incorporate the latest research. You know, they, they went heavy in, on Bob Backer in terms of, of the interpretation of some of the animals. But I think, you know, I asked this earlier, it was Jurassic Park kind of the top gun for paleontologists. Cool. And and are is that kind of media, is that important to keep kids interested in dinosaurs 
past seven years old when everybody moves on. So I'm now under, so I've never watched Top Gun. I don't know what backdraft is. So are those movies that led people to go into the Navy and into firefighting? firefighting? Yes. Okay. So did Jurassic Park lead to people to become paleontologists? Emphatically, yes. And every single movie has led, you talk to the paleontologist, the youth of today, and they talk about the Jurassic Park that they saw when they were eight, when they were 10. And they also talk about it when they were teenagers. They talk about the, the walking with dinosaurs apparently came out in 97 and walking with prehistoric beasts. So many of these paleontologists grew up with access to DVDs that they could watch it over and over. And it really, to those that became paleontologists, I would say that those movies act as a springboard, not just for paleo, because it's a, it's a, it's a tough way to make a living, but for STEM and STEAM roles in general. These movies to me are critically vital to keeping the pipeline of the next generation of scientists coming down. Um, so yes, absolutely. That's why I don't ever bash on the Jurassic Park movies or any of them, because A, we don't know, and B, regardless of how glamorized or Hollywooded up it is, the reality is, it resonates with individuals on a level that causes them to go and try to find out if that's true, especially a teenage you. If you had access to the internet as it exists today, you could go back to Reddit and quickly find out the pros and cons or jump on Twitter and tweet a paleontologist and they'll answer. And you can start getting into the mix at a younger and younger age. I mean, with citizen scientists, you can know the facts and you can even pull up the scientific papers if you wanna be bold and try to brave those things because they're PDFs out on, that are often accessible, especially on ResearchGate. So Jurassic Park has launched a generation of paleontologists. I was already in paleo when Jurassic Park came out, but every movie thereafter has brought another group of individuals into the fray. So yes, it is our top gun. It is our backdraft. It is our, uh, what's one? Um, let's see. Let me see if I can come up with something that I, um, I'll come back again. Indiana Jones? Uh, okay, Indiana Jones. I was going Archer. I've got something for this. And you just crushed it. <laughs> I'm sorry. You just, you just Archer. Ah, destroyed you. Ah. Well played. <laughs> that always happens to Archer. Uh, and I, what came to my mind was um, the porkies in these movies that makes you want to go to college you know those kind of movies when you're a, a 11 or 12 year old oh my gosh that right. happens college must be animal house yes yes, yes right not for animal house yes and how many people went to college because they watched animal house and thought they were going to get to punch a horse and ride in the float <laughs> maybe not david david was that you david that's I'm not gonna lie though. I was I was that generation because I was six when Jurassic Park came out. Not to age you guys here, but I was six, and like I was into dinosaurs before that. But that was that pinnacle moment, and I ended up, you know, I'm, I waited when I got the time to where I was choosing colleges. I said, you know what, I'm gonna join the Navy. I want to do that. I want to explore the world for a little bit, and then you know, my life changed. But I digress. It's it was that movie that made me extremely passionate. And I did discover from that Dilophosaurus. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. And to find out what he really was, I was like, all right, it's heartbreaking, but he's still really cool. And 
reading the books and finding out and doing the research and getting to meet uh you know i i when i was a kid jack horner and bob barker those were those were my rock stars those were my guys and i got to meet them and i was like all giddy and so it's having those moments definitely shined and my kids are into it now and luckily we we have an aquarium around here a mystic aquarium they just did uh they're doing a dinosaur exhibit so i get to have those experience with my toddlers who are way braver than i was at two years old because they go up to the animatronics and want to play with them and i remember being a kid absolutely terrified but you know when you look at the steam side so you sarah you have third graders so when they go and watch a movie and then they hear by one you know their older brother that's wrong that's not true then they google it they're actually partaking of the scientific method they're doing research that matters to them and that internalization that that building of a of a neural network that is going to show them that now when someone tells them something they can go find out now their parents may not appreciate it when they're sitting at the dinner table saying no mom you're wrong it's actually this but the, the whole part of the movies to the certain segment of society, it's magical. And then I'll go a step further for you, David. I think that the Jurassic Park movies is also an incredible value to the, to the graphics design and artist industry, both CGI and anyone who's involved in, in telling graphical stories because of how they handle, they take something that's tangible, the bones, and then they clothe it with musculature and flesh and they have to make decisions. And they find that there's no roadmap. We can't just look at the taxidermy and look what an elephant looks like. They have to go and build the entire animal, which allows their creativity to really explode. And it, it's a wonderful fit for the, the art portion of, of the steam component. So I think that you're spot on that that is what this movie does. One of the things that I had, I was watching one of those behind the scenes features about Jurassic Park and they were talking, you know, they, they had Spielberg and company, they had talked to some paleontologists and they had talked to some folks about uh, how dinosaurs would move. And they were saying that Jurassic Park was the first time that they got all the money in the world to put all of these bones into a computer and see how it would actually move. And so, because at the time, no one had computer graphics in the early 90s, and, and none of the universities or anybody had, had, that, had that budget. And so now we're seeing that uh, uh, play out. And you had earlier talked about how technology and, and, and loving technology. So does that feed into the artistic renditions? Does that feed into paleontology uh, and the, some of the theories that you guys come up with or some of the, the new interpretations of some of the old fossil records? Absolutely. In fact, I love meeting the next gen of paleo folks because they grew. Um, some of them grew up uh, with tech. So I started as a comp sci major. So I love technology. I love computers. But you're right. The tech in the 90s just wasn't capable of doing that and your your average 486 66 dx2 wasn't going to rock it with my uh diamond video card uh, or so nvidia wasn't even a thing right. so as a result today they have all the firepower they need in an ipad to do some kind of cool animation and it's really fun to sit and talk with these guys in a museum and gals and say hey wouldn't it be great if we were able to scan this or do that and and lickety split it's in blender and now all of a sudden it's running around in three-dimensional capabilities it's absolutely amazing and so much one of the things that keeps getting brought up to me by the youth by 
every 12 year, uh, every 10 year old for sure, is some TV show somewhere built a simulated Velociraptor claw tearing into jello. I don't understand it fully because I've heard slight variations of the same story. But the punchline is someone did a Mythbusters-like experience where they tested, could it claw? And what kind of claw damage would it do? Now, the reality is what the Seriema paper was here is to show that no, they used it to, they would stomp on their prey with their other long toes and they would use those sharp toes to kind of steer it and let it bite and claw repeatedly. They didn't slash because if you think about stabbing someone with a knife, as soon as you stab and pull, the skin bunches up. And now unless that thing is you know, obsidian sharp, you're, you're dealing with, and you've got a tremendous amount of force, it's just gonna get gummed up. So it's neat to see that people are able to test those with robots, with uh, computer simulations. And it's so cool because a lot of the behaviors that they can go back and say why this can't be, they can't do this because when we model the bones, for a long time, we weren't sure, and Jurassic Park has got it completely wrong in the original, the, how the hands worked. Now we know that they could, they could palm the ball, but they couldn't dribble the ball. The bones literally could not supinate. They could not pronate. They could only face one another. They can move their arms out and they can move their arms in, but they could not dribble the basketball. And what was cool was that was something that no paleontologist really had thought about until they started trying to model these. And you look at the limbs won't go in certain ways. And then in the St. George, uh, the Johnson Ranch St. George Dinosaur Tracks Museum, they found what's ostensibly a Dilophosaurus getting up from a resting position. And it looked like a ninja. All of its handprints are ninja-like pushing itself up and you would have expected it would have been splayed and pushed up nope because the bones can't turn this way so it's an example of a track validating what software suggests is the case and now we have actual tangible behavioral proof that that was the case so a, a second ago you were talking about access and having access to scientific papers and having access to to uh, museum pieces the dinosaur that you just shipped off to china um did you guys make 3D scans of everything that was sent before, or is that part of the ownership so that somebody could put that in their computer and then model it? Or how does that work? It's a blade to my heart. So I was, I was 40, yeah, 24 hours. If I, if, you know, if you can always, if yourself to death, if I'd gotten there a day earlier, the answer would be, yes, I scanned all of these and life was great. But the answer was when I got there, nope, they're in that giant crate that's been screwed shut and has the laden label on it. It's not being opened again. So I did not get to do that with the cervicals. Part two, the museum that bought this bought the digital rights. So they own the bones outright. They have the ability to do it should they so desire. Part three, it is still a very expensive process to three-dimensionally scan entire dinosaurs. So even though it's, it's come down in price and you can use a $20,000 scanner to get extraordinary scans, it takes a massive amount of time. And so unless you have a, a dedicated 3D scanning person, which some of the commercial places do, so Stan is a great example. They have molded, casted, and 3D scanned all of Stan's bones. The, the person that bought it bought the bones. They did not buy the IP, the intellectual property that goes with it. They did not buy the rights to the scans. They can't make casts. They bought the original. 
So a lot of places that we, we like to say we're scanning all the time, but the reality is uh, even with $1,000 scanners, you can get a really good scan on them, but it takes so much time to do it. And part two, and here's a dirty downside of digital that's going to bite so many of the youth. They're going to become so used to working in three dimensions. And sauropods are wonderful to study digitally because they don't hurt my back, or crush my fingers. They're really light. The problem is I also can't tell. And I don't you see that gap, that hole there on the humerus. I can't tell on a scan. Is that a real like it, it's you notice there's Bondo here. They, they patched it up. I don't know what's real and what's not on a scan. I don't know what's original bone. If they have put restoration on it, how do I know? So now we have a problem where we're introducing characters that may not have actually been present on the animal digitally, where at least if I'm there in person, I can look at it and go, oh yeah, that's clearly was artificial. So scanning is wonderful. What you do find being scanned a lot of the smaller animals. And the commercial collectors are really leading the way. I'll, I'll give a shout out to Treebold Paleontology Incorporated, TPI. Those guys are so far ahead of anyone else in 3D technology because they find fossils, they scan the fossils, and they digitally 3D print even the, the skeletons. That's awesome. So they're doing what you're talking about, and their files are incredible. Uh, otherwise, it's still, it's such a cost time, it's that cost benefit. Where do you, if you're a graduate student, I don't want to spend two years scanning an animal and then I have to do the research. So I'm going to pick a bone or two and I'm going to pick some important elements and tell a story. Once you've got your job, you're not necessarily going to scan it unless you can get a big grant to pay someone to scan it. And that's where it's at now. I think though, David, in the next five to 10 years that uh, as scanning becomes more and more accurate, better and better, uh, and becomes lighter weight. And your big challenge as well when you scan it is you still have to sew those images together. You scan one side, unless it's a small enough that you can rotate it, you've got to be able to sew them all back in post-production. And that takes a lot of time. And still on these big files, a lot of compute power as well. We're talking millions and millions of polygons to get high-res scans. And I run an i9-9900K with 64 mega RAM, all fast SSD drives. And I can even get chugged down manipulating 3D files. And this is a purpose-built rig. If I go working on somebody else's like a laptop, I just cry. I'm like, I'm, I'm not, I don't even do it. I said, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, we have been going for a while. And I don't want to take up any more of your time. I always love having you on. And oh, we're definitely going to have to have you on again. <laughs> You guys are awesome. And I, I, and I love... apologize for my soliloquization. I, I uh, start rolling like a train. No, it's, 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 it's okay. We're used to it with David. Sarah and, and I have done <laughs> many an episode with David together. Sarah, this is like number six or seven you've had been on with us. And That's so, awesome. yeah, it's at this point, it's we're used to it. So don't even bother. <laughs> it's all good. Did um, I get all your questions? Because I can try to speed round it like um, in a game show. I think Not so. For these, the ones I had that I wanted to get answered tonight, yes, we have answered all of those questions. Uh, the only other one that I was thinking about is when we were talking about behaviors. All I kept thinking about is pelicans, like sticking out their spines out of the mouth. I don't know if you guys know this, but like pelicans, like they will actually push their jaw down and have their spine come out of their mouth. It's absolutely terrifying looking. And thank you. 
And when camels, because you're talking about camels, uh, they will actually regurgitate part of their throat out to say, hey, how you doing? That's the way they show off how sexy they are. And I'm just thinking, I wonder if there's animals or prehistoric animals that did some of these things and what kind of disturbing things will we discover that they could have done or, you know, won't be able to discover because, you know, the organs aren't there. It's... it's that's where I, I look to sci-fi writers, you know, <laughs> creative people, because nature is seemingly cleverer than we are and is, is capable of the most bizarre solutions. And so I don't ever want to nay-nay folks. I, maybe because I'm easygoing as well. It's like, I, why do I get into an argument over something that's someone's creativity? But who knows the kinds of behaviors? One of my favorite, I just, I, I like to yeah, talk about ahead. this one, is so everyone loves Carnotaurus. Arnotaurus Austriae went down to Argentina. Yeah, you've already destroyed this for me. (laughs) Yeah, and the little arms. So what was it doing with those arms? I mean, the arms are utterly ridiculous. And then um, was it running around like birds of paradise and just flapping them rapidly? (laughs) That's one of the papers that was written a few years ago on uh, for Majungasaurus. They proposed it for Majungasaurus because they found a, a whole arm with four fingers. And but they were like a mitten. And what would you do? So whether or not it was feathered, if it was moving them rapidly, I also read a paper uh, recently that talked about why T-Rex's arms were so small. And it took it from a, from a, almost a philosophy of, of organismal design approach. It started with, well, what would be the problem of having long arms if I'm a Tyrannosaurus? And, you're, and it made the assumption that Tyrannosaurids were communal feeders in a way, at least family group feeding. And if you have long arms and you're all dining on the same Triceratops, you're going to bite the arm off of your kindred accidentally. So the hypothesis is those that were born with a little shorter arms, because you've got these massive machines of the mouth biting away and would immediately rip an arm off. There's no doubt a T-Rex going to take a bite of a Triceratops. And if if your son's arm got in the way, the arm's gone. And now you have a blood problem. You've busted the humeral. You've got arteries spurting blood. You got all kinds of woes and there's no one to fix it. So the hypothesis is the shorter arms evolve in conjunction with larger skulls to not be in the way of feeding. And I thought, what an interesting approach. Arm so dwarfism. It, yeah. <laughs> a chondroplasia. Woohoo. Yeah. The, mind blown. Holy cow. I never once that even possibly no, no crossed one my this, mind. So this gentleman just, and he it was a thought experiment. I'm sure he was sitting around drinking wine going, hmm, what, what's a different lens that I can approach this with? Because he's an older gentleman. If yeah. he was younger, he'd be swilling back beer or knocking, actually, spirits, beer. There's a whole evolution of drinks in paleontology. Oh, yeah. Fireball, Jägermeister, you know. Yeah, oh. yeah. We're not talking, talking about your college there. days, okay there, Steve. Not talking so, about your college. So days. this guy gets published. He he writes this up and gets published for that. That's awesome. Yep. Yep. So it, for, Royal for you, Academy of uh, Berkeley or some such. Huh? So so for you, uh, what is paleontol uh, for a paleontologist? What is academic immortality? Is it getting something named after you, like the Thagomizer, or or how how would you see want your legacy to go? So that's a, you know, we all talk about that. And uh, so much of paleo is, it's a combination of, so I learned in my grad school days, luck is number one. You, you can't, you can't, somebody's going to win the lottery and you hope 
it's you, but it's probably not going to happen that way. Number two, and the guys in the, you, in the Bacher, for instance, and Horner, these guys get a publicist. So even small fines can be overblown and, and hyped. And a lot of the students today are, are working on that angle when they're out publishing. So that's the other legacy is you tell everyone you're successful and famous and great. And if you say it enough times and get enough <laughs> backlinks and uh, domain authority ratings on SEMrush, well then woohoo, you are now important. Uh, if you can be on, if you can write books. So to everyone it's slightly different, but uh, like for me, I've had, I have seven dinosaurs I need to name, but callously I wanna sell the naming rights to corporations so I can fund more projects. So I'm not in any hurry. Paleo goes very slowly. So an academic legacy, naming a dinosaur is cool. I've killed a bunch of dinosaurs and I have some I need to name. Uh, so that, because your name stays around forever. And that's always neat. Coming up with a new hypothesis is fun and exciting. Um, so really it's, it's in my mind, it was, it's terrible. It was having a kid, having kids because now I've genetically passed my offspring. You know, my genes have survived. So for immortality, I did my part. <laughs> that's such a science kid. answer right there. Oh my God, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Like, yes. yeah, no. All the other stuff's irrelevant, but uh, it would be cool. So I got an email yesterday from a kid who asked me a dinosaur question and I answered and he wrote back and he was, hey, just so you know, I want to be a paleontologist because I want to be like my hero, you. And I'm like, what the heck? And so oh. I sent it to my buddies. I'm like, hey guys, look, remember, yes, you can be the bad boy and the controversial one. But the reality is we're making impacts on people that we have no idea we're touching. The academic, that's a great question. The immortality. Uh, I think that there's guys like people you've never heard of. You guys may have but Charles Gilmore, Richard Swan Law. These were Titans in the 1930s. They're gone today. No one's no one. They I was going to say Thorpe and um, who is his rival? Um <sighs> Right, but coming up with a great hypothesis is great until someone comes along with a better one that, or that disproves you. And then yeah. what happens there is now every time it's wrong, you get the following citation, Contra Curtis, 1996. <laughs> Forever, for 200 years, it's gonna do that. <laughs> buried, buried in the footnotes, right. Yeah, oh, they, oh we're, we're evil, we call it right out. And early on, we set the table. It's like, no, Curtis, 96, was erroneous and here's the 19 reasons why. Now your your Google citation score goes up because you got cited, but for the wrong reasons. So that's not altogether ideal. I was gonna but say, I you know, you could have said fossil crate, you know, that's something you got for your legacy right there. Yeah, and speaking of fossil crates, uh, we wanna make sure that you're, anyone listening to this gets to know that if they use the code DNA dad, on uh, anything they order for Father's Day. So whatever day that is, and then one day, you know, I guess if they use it between now and Father's Day, I suppose, you know that Gorgosaurus Hallux, we'll make that offer again. So the only That's way you awesome. get is the Tyrannosaurus crate. And so if they don't order that, I mean, it's a small little cool thing, but throw that in there, uh, DNA dad, and put that on there for them. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's so uh, kind of you to spend a couple hours hanging out with me like this. Are you kidding me? Come on. Aww. Sarah, I, I instantly I said, hey, Sarah, do you want to come back and talk to the paleontologist? She goes, yes, please, if you'll have me. And I was like, I was super, super excited because I took a new position for next year. I'm now teaching fourth grade science. And so I was like, yes. <laughs> so we need to chat before fourth grade starts. And how can I help you out 
um, both, you know, as like a guest lecturer, because I just, I did a, an invasive animals of Arizona talk for the local STEM elementary school the other day. Oh, that's day. so cool. And we're, <laughs> we're STEM school as well. So it would be fantastic Perfect. to get you in there and give us a little bit of a, a talking to. <laughs> it would be neat to see if we could figure out some kind of classroom access to paleo portals to where we could come up with some kind of, of low cost fee monthly to where when they want to sign up, like you could give it to all your classroom. It'd be one SKU that is usable by many. So we can get creative. Right. You gave me that idea last time. And now we've uh, really pondering how do we do that mechanically? So we've got some ideas we'd like to test. So as it yeah. comes closer, let's chat on to how we can make that happen. Absolutely. Sounds okay. great to me. And David, I can't help but notice as a Star Wars guy, That's you are uh, locked and loaded. So walk me through <laughs> Do you, do you want to show him the overcop overcompensator? Oh, <laughs> no, you don't want to see it. I promise. <laughs> uh, I've, I've seen it. You don't Sarah, want to. <laughs> Sarah and I are both in uh, several of the Star Wars costume clubs. So, so that's that's how that's how Sarah and I met. And that's how Steve and I met. It's so. my Death Star light. Nice. That is awesome. <laughs> it closes. It looks like it explodes. Uh, Colin Boivois, who's a paleontologist out of Utah is a hard arm is a mandalorian armor maker and a huge fan of his uh his his mandalore suit with a giant cod piece he showed me which cracked me up so, <laughs> that's awesome i'm pretty sure it wasn't that big and i'm pretty sure you're not needing that but i like what you were going with that. That's that's awesome. Awesome. So okay, yeah, so there's a lot, a lot of Star Wars fans in the paleo community as well. It's a great overlap. Yes. And I still think that the word crate, K-R-A-Y-T dragon that you all know from Tatooine, because it was made up of Dippy, the Diplodocus. They took some Diplodocus casts. I'm convinced that the name crate was created by the, the people who are, get the drag, get the crate dragon. Somebody somewhere said, get me the crate dragon. And it was the dragon in the crate. And that's how it got its name. And then the off the writer said, wow, I like that. We're going to spin it with respelling it. That, that wouldn't surprise me. So no. it's, it's testable too. We just need to go find out the first appearance of the word crate in a script or somewhere. Was it in the original script spelled that way? Or did it get named after the fact? In which case, I think I'm right. That, that very well could be. Hey, you never know. Paper we could write on there. <laughs> so, 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 so I can... Put this in here uh sir dr brian curtis where can people find you and where can they find fossil crates so we're at fossilcrates.com and then we're on all your social media stuff so at fossil crates with instagram and uh probably twitter TikTok at fossil crates uh, youtube at fossil crates and then facebook has something unpronounceable like brian curtis fossil something they wouldn't let me pick fossil crates but you can just type in fossil crates in your favorite social media uh, we're very active because it's a photogenic area, but fossilcrates.com is the landing page that will take you to all of the other experiences therein. Awesome. Um, so let's go ahead and wrap this up on our side. As always, please like, subscribe, and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you are listening to us on Apple or Spotify, please remember to rate and review. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, so please like and follow us at DNA Pod and on Twitter at NerdDNAPod or on our webpage, nerddnapod.com. Apparently, I don't know how to say webpage tonight, so that's okay. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I have been joined again by the amazing, the impeccable, the always adorable and overcompensating David Perry, uh, Miss Sarah Jones, who is moving up in the world of education and 
always here for another fun tangent. Dr. Brian Curtis, thank you so much, sir. Thank you, lady and gentlemen, for being on the show tonight. This is the DNA Podcast signing out. Thank you and good night. Nothing from you, David. I thought you were going to say goodbye just at the end, like last time. <laughs> <laughs> like a very dog. Hey. This is going to be